You're listening to Art Affairs, episode 26. Today I'll be talking to Greg Crayola Simpkins. So my name's Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. If this is your first time listening, Art Affairs is meant to give you a look at and into the new contemporary art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, shining a spotlight on the human side of the wonderful work they do. You can dig through previous episodes, complete with show notes at artaffairspodcast.com, and you can check out new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, if you like what I'm doing here, be sure to subscribe. And you can always connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Art Affairs Podcast. On Twitter, it's art underscore affairs. All right, so today's guest is artist Greg Simpkins. I've been a big fan of Greg's work for a while now. And one of the things about his work that has always resonated with me is how much storytelling he does and and how much effort he puts into world building. Uh, We talk about his storybook world, The Outside, on the show, as well as his passion for graffiti, his unique use of acrylics, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Greg Crayola Simpkins. Greg, welcome to the show, man. It's really good to have you on. I'm, I'm a big fan. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited. This should be cool. All right. Awesome. And quick shout out to your wife, Jennifer, who was, you know, I guess, also manages the business side of things. She was incredibly helpful and like super on top of things, helping to, to schedule this. So I just want to take a second to appreciate her. Yeah, I take a year to appreciate her. She organizes my whole life, makes everything run smooth. She's the best. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, all right, so let's let's jump into your background a little bit. Um, you know, you were born in Torrance, California, which a quick check on like Google Maps says that it's just south of LA. Um, right. I don't really know that area too well. Is it close enough to LA to feel like a suburb, or is it more of a small town vibe? It's definitely a suburb of LA, and it's got it's really spread out. It's kind of a big city, so you've got from the beaches to like the freeway. So it's spans like a really big area. So I've lived all over Torrance my whole life growing up, mostly in South Torrance, but I've lived in Eastside Torrance for a bit too. And, and then Redondo Beach and all that stuff. But yeah, I've been in the South Bay my whole life. It's been hard to, to get out of here, but (laughs) it's just, there's been a lot of opportunities, you know, just coming from living that close to Los Angeles too. So I just kind of stuck around over here. Right on. And from what I understand, you were like surrounded by animals as a kid, like with rabbits and turtles and all sorts of stuff. So like, like where, were these all just like pets that you had or where did they come from? They're definitely pets I had. Like we had, you know, cats and dogs as a kid. And then my mom thought it'd be fun to get some baby ducks and raise those. And around that same time, we got some rabbits and I raised them together. And so they became best friends. So my, my rabbits would protect my ducks and my ducks would look out for the rabbits and they would just, they were always together. It was really cute. And then, but uh, sadly, when I was like nine years old, 
my mom ran to the sliding glass door, closed the window shade, said, don't look outside. I was like, oh, no, what happened? I went outside. It was this uh, horror scene. A raccoon had got into the little pen we had and took out one of my ducks, took out one of my rabbits. And one of my other ducks was struggling and it had his neck like kind of bit up. And my dad and I nursed it back to health over the next few weeks. And at that point, I decided I want to be a veterinarian. And so that was my whole goal in life. From that point on, I was reading books about it. I read all, the, I read all the James Harriet books. I read like anything I get my hands on that had to do with animals and like just being a veterinarian. And I was obsessed with animals, you know, I was already obsessed with them, but it just kind of grew. <laughs> so that, that experience, I guess with, you know, that was obviously an unfortunate experience, but that kind of sparked your interest in, in veterinary as a profession. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was, I was dead set. Like everybody did that. Oh, he's going to be a vet. I like, it was really science heavy. And then, yeah, when I went to private school, I just kind of loaded up on learning all that kind of stuff. And when I came back to the to public school system, I was in like AP classes and kind of was trying to steer myself to get into UC Davis or something like that. Cause that was the school to go to, but that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're definitely not a vet uh, today. So, um, but parallel to that you've also always been into art i mean i think you were you started drawing when you were like three um which is is very young do do you like even remember what it was that sparked that curiosity with art yeah i just remember uh supposedly i i I needed to go to preschool and my mom dropped me off one day she stood or stuck around and I was such a pain in the ass like you know screaming crying i don't want to be here i don't want to be here she said fine take me home Rolled out some butcher paper on a table, dropped a bunch of crayons and pens and just said, just draw. And I was like, all right. And so that became my preschool. I would just draw in the mornings and and just roll that big old white sheet of paper out and start drawing. So it's not that I was a good artist from a young age or even up and through high school. I just did it. That's all I like to do. That's my, that was my free time. And that's how I played with my imagination and, you know, got out my daydreams. I just like, oh, that'd be fun to draw. I like I've never said I, I always say I drew from a young age, but I I still don't think the drawings are good. I don't know. They might have been okay, but But I mean the the significant part of that though is that you've never really known what not making art is like. Like it's always been a component of your life, it sounds like. Correct. Yeah, it's always been there. Uh, it, it's it was definitely my my go to pastime. What kind of work did your parents do? Anything art related or? Um, no, my dad's an engineer. He developed antennas systems for satellites and stuff. And he ran like a bunch a big floor of people like he, he's a definite engineer. And then my mom, um, she's a stay at home mom, but she did paint a little bit. I remember her taking oil painting classes when I was a little kid and she'd paint flowers and and barn scenes and stuff like that. And I was always like fascinated by the palette she kept in the freezer and she didn't do it that often, but I still would play around with the paints a little bit when she had them out. Nice. And I think anybody that, that knows you and knows your work um, probably also knows that graffiti has played a big big role in your art and, and your development yeah. as an artist. So like, what first sparked that interest in, in graffiti culture? Was that something that you, you sort of had around you a lot as a kid? I think I, I had it around me and I'd always notice it, but it didn't really like get into my head that it's something I could do until I was 17 and I, I was just this nerdy kid in the back of the class keeping to myself drawing in my my sketchbooks and in my on my notes and some of the other kids in the class saw it and these kids were graffiti writers and they're like 
whoa, that's really sick. Like, how'd you come up with that? I'm like, I don't know. I just draw these cartoon characters and they're fun to draw. And then one of them broke out uh, a book, my still my favorite book to this day, Subway Art. And I was like, whoa, what's that? You know, they can paint these kind of characters that big on the sides of subway trains like in New York. And I got hooked and just started talking with those guys. And I just started going out and seeking out like Can Control Magazine and, you know, whatever graffiti inspired magazines I could find. And, and then I got together with some of my friends, local skaters in the neighborhood and we just started writing on stuff and we'd get into the sewer drains near between the schools. There's these sewer washes and we'd hop the fences, climb down their backpacks full of spray paint and just go up and down spray painting everything, just practicing <laughs> our tags. And then I was like, no, I want to do big letters. I want to do characters. I want to try that stuff out in here. So I would take my sketches with me that I'd be drawing in my books and I would try it out with spray paint that I'd steal from my dad's garage and it just, you know, over time you start, you know, meeting people and they, they say, do it like this. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it like that. Use these tools, use this spray paint, use these tips. You can cut the tips a little bit and make them work this way. And I just started learning from all these people I'd meet and every place we would go spray paint, you'd meet somebody new. It was like the, like social, um, network back then was just going to yards and painting and meeting people. It was way better than Instagram and all that crap from today. You'd actually get, you'd actually get to talk to people, and then if and like on Instagram and stuff, if you talk shit, you can get your ass kicked. So it's like <laughs> there's there's so many like keyboard warriors out there that talk so much crap online. But if you did that in face to face back then, you'd you'd have to get in a fight. So it's like yeah, but it was way you'd have to show way more respect back then, and you keep to yourself and not try to act like a jerk, and you could get far. But it. It, it was so different. I always liked that comparison of the social networking back then was actually face-to-face meeting people, yeah. sharing books, drawing in each other's books, getting to know one another as opposed to today where everybody's just on a keyboard or on their phone. I wonder if that means that the fidelity of today's experience is just that much poorer, you know, because they're not in face-to-face as much. You know, especially right now, like during this <laughs> right. pandemic, like it's almost like it's kind of good now that you have some way to communicate people with people because there's a lot less interaction going on, especially. Did you ever get any, any kind of trouble? Like, did you ever get scooped up by the police? I've gotten caught like, uh, like, like multiple, multiple times. I've gotten let go multiple, multiple. I've never gone to jail for it, you know, knock on wood. But I did, you know, get a bloody nose once from a cop just slamming my face into the back of a car to handcuff me. It, no big deal. I shouldn't have been where I was at. So they're doing their job. No, I still don't care as long as I didn't go to jail. And then I was at, yeah. And then just running, lots of running. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, you were all set up to be a, a veterinarian um, all the way up until like your freshman year of, of college, I believe. And then suddenly you right. did sort of a pivot. Um, so what, I guess, what led to you changing and then repositioning to focus on art? Well, I, I started off going to junior college at El Camino College because I thought I'd just, you know, get my GEs done uh, for a lot less of the cost of going to a university. And um, I decided to take one art class along with my science classes, my general education classes. And that art class was awesome. Um I was like, wow, this is really fun. And I felt like I was catching on to the techniques really quick. 
And my art teacher was really supportive. He's like, why aren't you doing this as your major? And I was like, well, I, I kind of wanted to be a vet. He's like, well, you could draw animals. I'm like, I know that's what I draw mostly anyways. And I'm like, this does make sense. And then I got a job uh, with my friend, Mark Vidal. He needed to hire somebody to draw these street scenes for these pogs that were called street caps. And it was like a kid's game. Uh, pogs. Yeah, I remember the pogs. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, for a Ted Williams baseball card company. And I'm like, I could do that. So I, I drove down, or he came and picked me up, drove me down to San Diego. I slept on his couch for a few weeks and just worked all day on these characters and backdrops. And he would take them into work and Photoshop them into the products they were going to make. And it was my first like $10,000 check for an art job that I'd ever done. I was just waiting, waiting tables, delivering pizzas, a janitor, dog walker, like all since I was 12. These were all the jobs I'd have up until then, just drawing on the side and doing graffiti on the side. And then I was like, well, I could... I can make money doing art. I'm like, hey, dad, what do you think? Uh, give this a shot and just kind of pivot over to art. He's like, well, yeah, let's give it a shot and see what happens. And it just kind of, it kind of just took off from there. So that's pretty cool. I mean, your parents, it sounds like your parents were pretty supportive of that, even though you had sort of uh, all the way up until, you know, 18, 19 or whatever had imagined being a veterinarian. They didn't try to discourage you at all. No, they didn't. They were very supportive. But there was also a period of those years where I was really like rebellious and kind of just like running off doing my own thing. Um, so I didn't, I got, as long as I got my work done, I had a job and I got my grades, my grades are good. They kind of left me alone because I was just, I was never home. I was always crashing on people's couches. I was in a punk band. We were like going to punk rock shows. We were, I was spray painting everything, going all over the city, finding places to, get in trouble and not get in trouble at the same time you know but but they they stuck by me they 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 wrote it out those years and i'm very i'm very grateful i had a lot of colorful uh you know things happen during those years but it's just really nice to come back and they're by my side the whole time and my dad's my biggest inspiration of what a father and husband should be so i really try to follow in his footsteps that's really cool. Um, and so as part of that shift, you ended up going to California State University uh, of Long Beach and focusing on studio art. But Correct. obviously, with all the, all the time you were going out and doing graffiti, was that difficult to balance those two and still get your work in on time? <laughs> See, that's why I always feel bad because like, I really got by at Long Beach State. Like, I, I, I don't know <laughs> how. I ditched so many classes. I got to be really good friends with certain teachers um, that yeah, I'd show up for my etching class and it's like, hey, I got it done. Like, all right, see ya. And they knew I wasn't going to be a class the next rest of the week. And yeah, those were those years where I, I, I got by, um, I just by the skin of my teeth, I graduated because I was having a lot of fun. Like, cause I, I, you know, be just in school at Long Beach, which there's plenty of places to paint in Long Beach. But then I, I'd, I'd go down to Wilmington on my way home and my buddy NATO lived in Wilmington. And I just, just on my way to school, say, oh, screw it, and call, get off and get on a payphone, call NATO, what are you doing? We'd go, I'd go to his house, we'd get a bunch of spray paint, and we'd go paint the banning yard or like different, you know, yards around the area or just hop in his car and go look around Los Angeles to paint some spots. And I was really excited to go spray paint. And then I'd go to class and I'd be like, I really enjoyed my life drawing classes a lot and my, my illustration classes. That's where I excelled the most. But I wasn't really learning to paint and stuff in, in school. I was learning how to render and I was learning how to build my concepts, which I really appreciate from Long Beach State. But then I would take that out and I'd go spray paint and <laughs> use those techniques. And that's where I was really learning. 
Do you feel that that time in school was valuable or do you think you were learning more painting out on the streets? I think there's a combination of the two. I think there's some good stuff I learned there and stuff that irreplaceable. I think it was mostly some of the friendships I gained there. And the number one thing I gained there was I met my wife my last year there, her first year in. There you go. And to this day, I, I, I tell everybody the reason I went to Long Beach State was to meet my wife. We, we've been together. We just celebrated our anniversary, our 17th wedding anniversary. I think we've been together 23 years, I believe. Yeah, it was like, so it was like 23 years ago we met at Long Beach State. So, so, so the answer to that question is, is definitely yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I remember just ditching class. I'd go ditch class. She was in like marketing and business classes. And I'd just go sit in the back of her giant classrooms and draw and just just talk with her like and disrupt her during class but <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so, so you ended up graduating in 1999 um and and getting your uh bachelor's degree in, in studio art that was also the year at least from a timeline perspective that you joined what's considered the lakers of all graffiti crews cbs right. um, how did how did you first connect with those guys uh, I can because of NATO. Oh no, it's actually uh, I met Circus, who was also in Shapeshifters, the the rap group, um, in about 1993. And I showed him my black book, and he, well, he noticed I was carrying a black book. He's like, hey, "Let me see that black book." I'm like, "Okay, who's this guy? Is he gonna beat me up?" And he turned out to be the nicest dude. And he was going through. He's like, "Oh, this is pretty cool stuff." And then he, he's like, "Let me have a marker." I'm like, "Okay." And he did. He filled that whole page up really quick. He's big circus CBS. I was like, "Oh, you're circus! Holy crap! I've seen you up on the freeway." He had this landmark CBS spot over off the 110 freeway. I used to drive by all the time. I'm like, "Dang, you're circus! Cool." He's like, "Yeah, why don't you come over sometime? Let's hang out." I'm like, "Okay." Went to his house. And he lived in like this attic part of this house and it was covered with old toys and random creepy things. And it was awesome. Just every inch of it had like graffiti on it or some old advertising logos. And we just were watching like rap videos and watching like things he'd put together. These real quirky dude has an awesome imagination. And I just fed off of it and hung out with him. And he took me to my first CBS meeting in 1993 where I met like Vox and Epic and Anger and Express and Gasoline and like all these dudes I just looked up to and I think uh, Exist was there and Axis and I was just like oh man these guys are sick I I can't keep up with this and I'm like I'm not I'm not good enough to see be down with this crew so I went those next years up until 19 until I met NATO in like 97 I just worked on my own stuff I was in a crew called SCI I was in a crew called Dynamics and I and then I started a crew called HDK in my neighborhood, and me and those kids uh, with another crew called JK, we would just run around and just cover the South Bay with our tags and stuff. So I got I got known for that. But the SCI stuff is what I got known for on the freeways because me and my buddy Latin and my buddy Mayhem, uh, who wrote, his name's Dave, we would go and paint these oil drums on the 110 freeway, and we had some other cool spots, and we'd paint Venice and all the local yards in LA too. But then I met my buddy Castle. And when him and I started going out painting together under the name SCI, under the crew SCI, we started getting notice. So when we met NATO, he took us under his wing, taught us how to really do productions along with my, my good friend Plek uh, from WAI. And those two taught us how to really do productions. And it was really Plek too, who, who really schooled me on a lot of graffiti stuff that like, how to get into places, where to go. 
he would take me on road trips. He's 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 my pretty much my number one mentor. It's it's Plek and NATO, and then painting with Castle. There's so many though. It's like and when I got into painting acrylics, is Axis who really broke it down for me. Like you got to do it this way. And I, there's so many listed names. I, I don't want to forget anybody. Like people that that really spoke into my life. I I consider them my teachers and mentors because they they showed me the tools to use and just got me going. So I really look up to the, those guys in that period of time was my schooling. It, they were my, my classrooms. That's amazing. And it's so cool that they kind of took you under their wing. And I mean, again, back to what we were saying earlier, you know, um, the very in-person experience that all of this was, um, you, you possibly couldn't have risen to, to the level you are today without a lot of that in-person schooling that you had. Right. I think they, they also, it was like a confidence boost for me too. Cause I was such an introverted kid that, it's like these cool guys I looked up to took me under their wing. They're like, "You could do this too. Just do it." And it's like, "Wow, they 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 believe in me. They have they think I can do this. All right, let's do this." And also, we're having a lot of fun too. A lot of you know busting balls and like just making fun of each other while we paint. It's it's like you know whenever you're with your group of your your guys, your friends, and you just you're learning together, but you're joking around with each other too. It was a it was a fun way to learn. Have you have you been able to to still stay connected with them today? Yeah, I I still talk to a lot of these guys. Um, I, I I try to talk to Plek whenever I can too because he I still really learn a lot from that guy. He he's just got a, a wealth of wisdom too. He's a good person, so I, I really love those guys. The WAIs. I, I I'm really having fun watching those guys grow right now. There's a lot of new young blood in that crew. And I'm really honored to be one of the older guys in the crew, just watching these young dudes like Scholar and, and Stray and Cero and, and Farm. And uh, there's so many just killing it. And it, it's really fun to watch these guys. And of course, the CBS guys are killing it as always, too. It's just, it, it's, it's just fun being parts of these crews, even though I'm like, I feel like I'm off in the stands a little bit being a father and, and working as many hours as I do working on canvases, I, I'm really am sidelined a bit, but I'm able to sneak out here and there a couple few times a year and paint some walls with these guys. Nice. Very cool. Um, so after graduating from school, um, you spent a handful of years working in the commercial sector. Um, right. And, and I think at first you were doing illustration jobs for clothing companies, um, even like Jinkos, I think at one point. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, were you, what, were you, what were you doing for them? I got I got hired as an illustrator, so I was designing like T-shirt graphics. It was at the point where they're switching from the super giant baggy pants into more of like a different look they were going for, or whatever. So I was doing like um, just advertising, like like art illustrations and T-shirt illustrations, which you know I was there a year and a half. Hardly any of it saw the light of day. I remember seeing it in some stores, especially the, it was basically the big labels they would have on the pants. It'd just be a big illustration on it. I do like the magazine illustrations and it was just a really weird work environment. And I've, I've said it before in other podcasts. I'm not going to trash it too much because I'm going to talk about the positive parts of it this, this time, because I met, um, you know, Bill McAvoy, um, Ken Bustamante, dudes who are just artists and illustrators and designers there that were my art directors that also taught me how to use a computer. I sat next to Coffee, one of the biggest artists in the world, and Axis and Epic and Yellow and Diesel and Drunk and Fume. All these guys are, again, people that I'm learning from. And I had the opportunity 
to learn from these guys on the job. But it was Ken Bustamante that really sat down and taught me how to use Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop and refine those skills so that I didn't know it at the time, but a lot of the guys I worked with there, like my buddy Michael Wicken and some other guys, um, did a mass exodus and quit and went to work for Treyarch, which is a studio of Activision. And at the time, I was like sweating, like, I don't want to work here anymore. I want to, I want to get out of here. Like, everybody's getting laid off and... I'm kind of like the lone survivor, like the last illustrator hanging around and just the work environment wasn't really good. So I was going and interviewing everywhere and I finally just kept bugging my friends at Treyarch. I'm like, guys, here's my portfolio. Get me here. Let me, let me talk. Let me talk to the main dude. And they brought me in and uh, I got to talk to, um, his name's Dogen, the owner of Treyarch. And he sat me down, looked at my portfolio and I had all the artwork I'd done and all the digital work I'd done, thankfully I had digital work under my belt from Jinko, and then I had all my graffiti in there too. He's like, well, we're looking for somebody who knows how to use the way around the computer, but could also knows their way around graffiti and stuff because in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2X, which you'll be working on, we need it laid out perfect. And it seems like you're the guy for the job. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I freaking went home. I, I, I shed a tear. Like I got this crazy job working on this video game, which I already play every day, you know, at my girlfriend's house. And I'm like, oh, I can't believe I just got a job working on Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. This is insane. And it was for a lot better money. And it was on a team with some of the best people I've ever worked with in my life, who I still love. And it was so much fun. I learned so much. They set me down for like a month and just crash course, learned 3D Studio Max, enhanced all my computer skills, and just, I had learned from the best. I went to work and just, I was there for like six years, five years, loved every minute of it. And so as part of that work for um, Treyarch and, and, and Activision, um, you, you did texture artwork, right? So what did that, what does that involve exactly? So imagine um, you're, you're given the wireframe for a city scene and that city needs to have believable brickwork, believable stucco, believable cement, believable windows and, and storefronts. So that was what I did. I would do that kind of stuff. And then you want to weather it, make it look like it's in the city. What would be on that? Well, imagine somebody went to go spray paint a piece on that wall or throw up. I want it to look like somebody actually went and did it on that wall accurately, not like just stamped all around. So I would I would take photos of my friend's graffiti and some of mine, and I would place it all around the city. So my crew really gets up a lot in that game. <laughs> and in the Spider-Man games I worked in too, like there's a lot of WAI and CBS people up in those video games because I was just saying, give me photos, give me photos. I'm going to chop them up. I'm going to place it in the city to make it look accurate. That's so cool. It's so cool. You're able to kind of give a nod to them as well. Of um, course. So, you know, video game development, from what I understand, from the software side of it, um, that's pretty brutal. Like that can be some brutal like deadlines and oh, pretty yeah. stressful. I mean, like in school, like a lot of people kind of romanticize video game work because, hey, you get to play games all day. But man, those deadlines and the stress there are are brutal. So was it the same for you as far as the art side of things? It was brutal. The hours are so hard. And you would literally, I could get there at nine in the morning, not leave till midnight during crunch time. And it was like, like when it wasn't crunch time, it was chill. It was like 10 to 6, 10 to 5, big long hour, hour and a half lunch. We'd go to Venice Beach. We'd go everywhere for lunch. But um, when it came to crunch time, they're bringing in lunches. They're bringing in dinners. 
you are working hard and they're making you fix things, redo files, like file sizing, like even anything, working with um, the programmers and the coders, like I need this to look like this. Can you make me a tool to do that? And it, it was really technical and it really stretched my brain a lot. Um, but then there was a lot of downtime where I still had to stay there while everybody else is getting their stuff done. Maybe I'm waiting for that one asset for like a level asset that I have to add the textures to, but they're not done. So I'd sit and I would work on my own personal work. And that's when I developed my first website, I'm scared.com. It was uh, my friend, a couple of cubicles over was working on websites. He's like, you need a website. I'm like, okay. And so he, he built me a website and I developed, I put all the artwork together and I made my first website and started dropping art on there. And then my friend popped over the cubicle from me, my buddy Rook. He's like, Hey, I, that's a cool website, but you should get a MySpace. I'm like, what the hell is MySpace? <laughs> He's like, here, just go to this website and, and just join it. There's, you know, cause there's downtime during the, even during crunch time. So I'm like, all right. And I joined MySpace and I started throwing my paintings up that I would work on at night. And yes, I was getting home at 10 at night and working till two in the morning, <laughs> getting up at eight. And, and I was just, I had to paint. I was so like wound up when I got home, I would just go into my little studio and I would, which was a cubicle basically at the house and I would paint. And so I started putting these paintings up on MySpace. And I say, no, people from like Germany and all over the world are hitting me up like, oh, that's really nice. Are you selling those? I, I guess. Yeah, I'm selling these uh, this much money, you know, and that started to snowball. So I was getting really encouraged from that feedback to go home and paint. So I could come in and scan stuff and photograph stuff with my friends had good cameras at work. So they'd shoot my stuff and we'd throw it up on MySpace. And so started the social media empire or whatever <laughs> that it was. That's amazing. So, I mean, that ultimately in like 2005, you ended up uh, dropping the commercial work and moving into focusing on your own art. Was it that snowballing and the, the kind of momentum that you'd picked up on social media that gave you that confidence to let go of the, the side work? 100%. It was an email I got from uh, my future gallerist, Jensen Karp. And the same day, I, I, I got an email from um, Matt at Upper Playground and they both were saying almost the same thing. You should show with us. You should show with us. I was like, wow, this is weird to get two emails in one day. And I, I called my wife or I think we were still dating at the time. And I was like, do you, what do you think about this? And she's like, I think it could be really good. No, we were definitely married at the time. And I, we set up a meeting with Jensen and we went down to Gallery 1988 in Melrose. And they told me about the I Am 8-Bit art show they were about to have. And they really wanted me to do a painting for it. And I'm like, that's cool. He's like, but have you ever thought about doing this full time? I'm like, no, it doesn't make sense. People can't make art, you know, and a living full time. I, I've seen people, I've gone to a lot of gallery shows at the time. I've been going to Mary Karnowski art shows and seen Todd Shore and then Mark Ryden shows and Joe Soren and, and Gary Baseman, Tim Biscuit. These are all guys I'd looked up to. And, and then 1988 was a really fresh face on it. And I really liked what they were doing, but I was like, this it can't work but i'm gonna definitely start <laughs> i'll start showing and i did my piece called pac-man and hospice which is just a collection of old video game characters and it sold before the show even started and i was like oh wow people are interested in it and he's like yeah we definitely need to do more and so started the snowballing in the gallery world was because of jensen and katie and john gibson at the time when he was with them over at um gallery 1988 and 
I really owe a lot to Jensen for believing in me and, and pushing me in that direction because they just they they kept selling out shows and and they would tease me and make me think that nothing had sold. I'd show up, there'd be red dots and everything. <laughs> I was like, "You guys are freaking me out here!" Like, I'm a ner- <laughs> I, I'm a nervous wreck most of the time anyway. So I was just like, "Dude, I I, I guess I can keep doing this." So. Well, you mentioned Mary Karnowski. That's a that's uh, been one of your strongest gallery relationships over the years. Like, how did you first establish that relationship and make such a partnership with them? I just I, I'd always admired what Mary did. I always looked up to her program and and the artists she showed. And um, I I showed with uh, Gallery nineteen eighty eight for many years. I think maybe like seven years or something. And always loved what they're doing and but there was a a period of time where i hadn't booked any shows and i was kind of looking like what what other opportunities are there out there i'd shown with joshua liner in new york and i'd shown at yves laroche in montreal and a lot of shows at 5024 sf in san francisco and then uh my buddy johnny command z hit me up and said hey man like i'm gonna be doing a small show here with mary karnowski and i was like oh no way that's awesome and it's like, it came up that maybe you'd like to do the big room. I was like, oh my gosh, it'd be a dream come true. I, I, I would love to. And so we, I had a meeting with Mary and I told her, I was like, you know, I, I'd like to do one more show with Jensen just to like see them out like in a solid way. And I'm curating a show for him also, like the Inley Black Rabbit show. So I basically had two more shows with Jensen and then we made a plan, a, a schedule for me to do a show with Mary. And it just went awesome. It was uh, my cloud theory show, and I, I, I had the the main hall, and Johnny had the back room, and and we had just such an amazing time there. And now it's been like seven years since we've been working with them. So yeah, I just you know I love Mary, I, I love James and and Jessica over there, what they do, and they're awesome. That's very cool. Very cool. Um, so let's let's dive into the work a, a bit. Um, you know, obviously one of the constants that that seems to have been part of your work all along. You even mentioned it earlier, like this is what you always drew as a kid, are the presence of animals. Um, you know, why why do you think animals and I guess the natural world have been such a big focus for you? Is that kind of tie back to your childhood and and growing up with so many? Uh, definitely, it's like that. And you know, getting Animal Planet and watching animal shows all day and. <laughs> And getting, I had subscriptions to National Geographic and Dog Fancy and stuff like that as a kid. Ranger Rick, um, just I just find them fascinating. I mean, birds especially. I mean, look at these beautiful jewels flying around the sky. It's it's fascinating. Even yesterday, I was on a walk, and it just occurred to me, like it's occurred to me many, many times. This is one of the things that really inspires me the most. Just looking around, walking around, looking, you see flowers. Like, look how beautiful these flowers are. Look at the color, the colors. I, I picked this flower, so it was orange with uh, black dots. And I'm like, ah, oh, that looks just like this fish I saw in the book the other day, this um, coral reef book, a box fish, right? And it had the exact same colorings. I'm like, this fish will never see this flower ever. I mean, but I can do a painting of this fish surrounded by these flowers, and all of a sudden it makes sense. These color schemes talk to each other. They relate. And it's like, wow, what other things in the ocean can I pair with things out of the ocean that will never come together? But it's my job to put together. I'm going to morph a bunch of flowers into dolphins or orcas. or, And I can do that because I have that artistic license. I don't have to paint what I see. I can paint whatever's in my imagination. And I imagine all these different morphs of animals and even like I, I started morphing these flowers together that don't really go together. I'm like, that's kind of cool too. Like that things in the natural world are just super interesting to me. 
probably more interesting than people, but <laughs> I need to work on painting more people into it too. But I just, I'm fascinated with these things that don't, won't ever see each other, but are beautiful in their own rights. Like birds or like butterflies and coral reef fish. Like, man, they're awesome. They have these lives that are very similar. I'm going to put them together. Do do certain animals represent specific like character traits or archetypes? I, I know rabbits specifically use a lot of times as guides into you know the other world or whatever. But are there other kind of representative animals that you use? You're right about the rabbits. They're they're the they're like the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland. They're they're taking us through portholes and rabbit holes into other worlds. So they definitely represent. Like I'm going to take you on an adventure. You're you're about to have some fun, rabbits. Um, definitely the blue jays. I've been painting this blue jay forever. I, I named it Breeze, and I write stories behind my work. And he's pretty much like your guide into my world. I call the outside. He's the one that protects you and takes you around. And something happens, Breeze shows up and flies you out of there and takes you on adventures. Everything's kind of like an adventure. It's like you know, I grew up reading like Alexandra Dumas and like. Three Musketeers, The Man in the Iron Mask, and then all the Robin Hood books and Chronicles of Narnia books. Like adventure is a big thing for me, and heroes quests, and and I love all that stuff. So it's kind of like a thread behind all my work is like, what's the hero going to get into in this painting? Very cool. And you mentioned the outside. That's sort of your world that that you've been constructing over the years. Um, at what point did you discover that? that was the direction you wanted to go with your work and shift into more of this world building. It was with my piece, The Pearl Thief. And the and the paintings prior to that, years before I did this painting called The White Knight, and he became my character, Ralph, who finds himself stuck in the outside and he has to figure out why his why his body's changing to like a shapeshifter. Why, why, what's going on? How is he going to get his way through there? And I did this piece called The Pearl Thief through a client and friend, Nick Cassavetes, and it was became the largest piece I'd ever painted at the time, which is eight feet by six feet. And it really dove into this world. And I, I made up this story about this character who who comes into our world and steals kids' dreams at night in the shape of a pearl and takes it back to his, his master or whatever. And it, it just became this whole storyline. And I'm like, wow, what's that world? That world, you know, it's the outside. And and, you know, our rules don't apply there and, and, and things are weird and crazy. It's like all the worlds you create, but everything can make sense there. Things that don't make sense here can make sense there. So I have license to paint whatever I want. As long as it's in the outside, it makes sense. Very cool. And it just started growing. Yeah. And I, I still, that's my muse now for everything I paint ever since is the outside. And you mentioned that sometimes you were like, write these stories down. Is that something you do on a regular basis? Do you, do you kind of write out larger narratives around the work? A semi-regular basis. I, I I get moments of inspiration where I have to sit down and start writing this stuff. And it depends on the paintings I'm working on. I don't do it for every painting. There's been ones I've seriously wrote lots of stuff for that was just a tiny little painting. But it's like, oh, wow, but what if this and that applied to it? And I don't share it with too many people. But it's they're really, I, I, I love these stories. And I, I, I have shared it with a few people that we might be working on some stuff with, you know, fingers crossed. And nice. But um it's uh, it's what makes the works make sense to me. A lot of people ask, is it just a jumble of weird crap that you're doing? Or is there a, a more meaning to it? There's definitely more meaning to it. And the paintings all talk to each other. They all connect. And people, a lot of people know where to look to see how they connect. 
I love that. I, I love that idea, or the way that you connect a lot of these individual paintings. And sometimes they're subtle, um, yeah. but like you have a key keyhole in one that you could peer through to see the other. I, I like. I absolutely love that sort of stuff. When I was, I think it was high school. Um, Stephen King had come out with a pair of books, uh, Desperation and the Regulators, and on the cover. A cover of one was was what whatever it was, and on the back of the other was a cutout in a fence where you could see the cover of the other. Um, oh wow! But he did one under Stephen King and one under his pen name. So if you didn't know about him, you didn't know that they were connected. But he connected them in these little kind of subtle ways. And I see a lot of that same sort of stuff like in your paintings and some of the stuff that you do. Oh, I love that. I love Stephen King too. I listen to his audiobooks while I'm working. So yeah, that's really cool. I didn't know he did that. Yeah, I think it was like 96. It was like mid-90s or something. And he did one under Richard Bachman and then one under Stephen King. Uh I think he even used different publishers just to kind of throw people off. (laughs) (laughs) That's clever. Um, So for like individual bodies of work, like a solo show, how much or how do you approach the story or theme for that individual show? Do you treat them as like chapters of a book or, uh, you know? Yeah, I definitely do. When I sit down to start a show, I, I start writing lists Word lists, um, idea lists. I have a, a notepad in my phone and I, I'll just go on walks and sit. I'll sit at the beach sometimes and just my brain starts going. I start writing notes, cool phrases that sound good together, what some of the painting titles could be, what show titles could be, and plays on word, lots of puns. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Or I'll write stuff like um, pair of fish with flowers. Like that's like what I wrote down yesterday. And then all of a sudden, like, I write, why would I pair fish with flowers? What's the reason? And I'll write out, like, artist statements. Why do these make sense together? Why, why am I doing this? And from there, I start sketching in my notebooks. And my sketchbooks are really loose thumbnails. And, but that keeps it alive and fun for me, keeping it quick and messy. And then I'll start going through, I'm like, oh, this one's exciting. And I'll start pairing different thumbnails together, which become, you know, I'll redraw it, I'll redraw it, I'll redraw it, which become... Um, compositions for paintings and then I just choose what I feel to be the strongest ones or the most interesting to paint for me and I'll just go from there and and do you tend to develop the storyline for a painting up front or is it something that sort of develops and organically becomes what it is as you paint they're all kind of different but I'd say mostly they develop as I paint or as I draw once I as I get the drawing formed I leave a lot open in the sketch. I won't, I won't do the whole drawing and then transfer it and then do exactly. I leave rooms for inspiration. So while I'm painting, I'm like, oh, but this guy from this other painting would be here because this is that point in the story when so-and-so happens. And I leave room for interpretation, especially on the big paintings. Like little ones, it's kind of harder to do that. But the large scale paintings, because I don't want to drop the whole thing, because I know there's going to be big open areas. I'm like, oh, this would look so cool right there. And this would make sense in the world. So like a piece like Let the Outside In, uh, I, I draw the main areas and then I just start letting my brain go where it wants to go as I paint. And that's really fulfilling. Okay, very cool. And 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 so like at, you know, you your starting point and your origination of your concepts are, are born out of your sketchbook. How does it make that translation from sketchbook to painting? Do you project them? Do you do you sketch them out or how does it go from sketchbook to paint? There's a combination, it's a hybrid of everything. Like I definitely will size in I'll make a Photoshop file that's the size of the of the canvas first and I'll make my grid lines. I do all my, my little golden ratio spiral. I like try to lay things out really neat. And then I used to do a grid, 
method with a paper transfer method where I would print out, you know, I would grid out the majority of what the background is that would paper transfer, which I would tile eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. I would blow up the image, tile it on eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper, tape it up, put a piece of transfer paper under each one, pull it down. It could take a day or longer. And then now it's a combination of gridding and a projector and sometimes the paper method, but a lot of times I, I don't even, I won't even bother with the paper transfer. I'll project most of it up and I'll make sure I, I get a, a grid line of halfway marks and then I use um, landmarks on the actual things I have drawn on there if I if I've projected and I'll just take a white color a white charcoal pencil and I'll just by looking at my drawing and my sketch and looking at the landmarks on it I, I just draw it on so I'll just out of the head transfer things on okay very cool um and, and acrylic is obviously your medium of choice Yes. Um, what what do you like about acrylic compared to you know watercolor or oils or, or whatever? People usually hate this thing about acrylics. I like how fast it dries, and everybody's like, "It dries too fast." I'm like, "No, it dries in the right amount of time it's supposed to dry." <laughs> <laughs> That's how it's supposed to dry. That's how acrylics work. So I I, I never got proficient in oils because I was always working with spray paint, and spray paint dries really fast. So when I started moving over to acrylics. It didn't dry fast enough for me sometimes because I was used to spray paint. And so then I started developing my my skill set with acrylics from moving forward from spray paint. I'm like, oh, it doesn't work exactly like that. I'm going to need some are more transparent, some are more opaque. Which ones are going to work opaquely at this fashion so I could render it and then I come back with the transparent paint and do washes and glazes afterwards to add in the juicy color. So I know it works as opaques so I can get those blends but then I can really just juice it up at the end by glazing the transparency into it. And it just became this, oh, this paint works this way. This works that way. I'm going to just study it, do lots of experiments, make lots of mistakes, and then come to, you know, whatever the style is going to be. And it's been years of figuring out acrylics, but I love it. I love all the nuances. And people still say, oh, you make it look like oils. And I still say, I make it look like acrylics. That's how acrylics work, obviously. <laughs> so it's an acrylic painting. One of the things that I respect so much about your process, having watched some of your videos, is you, you will completely render with enormous amounts of detail, something like a fish, only to cover it up like several times over under layers of water <laughs> so that it's just in the background and it's very just a hint of something. Um, I hate myself. I hate myself. <laughs> I hate myself. How did you figure out that layering process? I mean, and work that out so that it works so well. Oh, it was an accident. Like the layering process like that, I I was working on a piece. I think it was called the betrothal. I think I was working on that piece or no, it was before that. And I was doing this distant uh, mountain scene or these weird clown mountains. And I was trying to use muted out color so you can get that atmospheric perspective. And somehow I had spilled a like my hand dragged some white paint and it got across the whole swath of mountains I painted. Frantically, I started spraying it with a water bottle I had and took this giant brush I always keep on me and started badgering it off to get it off. I wiped it with a paper towel. It was still on there. So I just started to smooth it out and it created this misty ghosting effect. I'm like, looks just like the far off mountains do over here, the hills when there's a fog. I'm like, I fogged it out. Perfect. Blue, blow dried it, sprayed a bunch of water on it and I, and I, and I, and I squeegeed off the water. So it's slightly damp and I threw some more white paint on it and I did it again. I was like, this is awesome. 
And that led to like, let's try it with different colors. What, what if I did it with transparent paints? And that led me to figuring out how to, how to do that ghost effect. But it also introduced me to how I could start glazing and washing things because I just kept experimenting with that. So it just, I use it on everything now. I, it, it taught me how to color things. It's amazing that that, that that accident that could have been tragic and you know led to you being in tears actually ended up you know, producing an entire technique that you've used to today. Yeah, and it was purely a, a happy accident. So I'm very much open to all that stuff and, and messing things up and painting something all the way through and then painting right over the top because this idea has to go there because it is, it will make the painting better. I like this. I can't be too precious with things. I have to be able to let them go. But I do like the process of like the fish in the background. I will render out that whole thing and then paint over it mostly. <laughs> and I just feel like, I, I feel like it lives in that space and this thing is in front of it. If I just paint part of it, it's not real. But if I paint the whole thing, it's really there and it's alive. Yeah. So I'm stupid. Well, I, I love it. And it's, it's fun to watch for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a glutton for punishment, but I love the process. Um, and you mentioned earlier the six by eight painting that started a lot of the, the outside. And, and you do generally work on very large pieces. Um, yeah. as, as big as, as some of your pieces are, um, and as long as the, that takes, how do you track progress and not sort of get burnt out um, you know, without the incremental wins that you might get with smaller pieces? I like, I, I don't know, I really love painting a big piece. I approach it each day like I'm painting a different piece. Like it's, it's a large painting. It's just a collection of small paintings and one giant canvas. If I finish a section that I set myself as a goal, finish this section today about this size, which could be like between a foot or less or smaller size of your hand. You made it today. You finished that painting. If I don't finish it that day, it's in my head all night and it's bugging me. But like you, you could probably even see behind me. I have a, a five foot painting on the the easel and i'll set myself a goal on that flower on there i'm gonna finish this in two days and i did and i was like hooray you know let's move on to the next spot you know and it just those goals are finishing a different painting every day so and i like the the big pieces because you could really jam pack it full of detail and all these color nuances and richness and you can give it a glow that it's harder to do on a small painting. You can still accomplish it. It's just, dude, you make one little mistake on a small painting, <laughs> one brush stroke of a fine 10 over zero liner, you could take a whole face out of a character that you'd spent like hours on. Whereas on a big piece, you can get a little messier and tighten it up in the end. Just you have, you're, there's a little looser um, technique you can apply on a large painting. Very cool. Do, do you work on multiple pieces at once at all to break that up any? I work on one painting at a time and multiple drawings at a time. So I'll paint during the day and draw at night, draw concepts at night, sketch at night, or work in my iPad on Procreate and do my concept sketches and combine things at night. Or I'll even take a picture of the painting I'm working on and noodle around on it at night. Just go, oh, this would be cool here. This would be cool there. And I'll, that drawing on top of that drawing of the painting. Drawing on top of that painting, I will look at it the next day and go, the idea is strong. I'll take a white pencil and I'll draw it right on top of the painting and then attack it. Oh, very cool. So that's, that's how the painting sort of evolves, I guess, organically from whatever you've originally sketched. Is you'll come up with new ideas that you'll just draw onto the canvas? Yes, exactly. And um, that's part of the fun of it, too. It's like, I didn't think that was going to go there, but the painting told me so. So <laughs> I have to do it. 
That's awesome. Um, so we've talked a little bit about materials, and I wanted to ask you about the relationship that you've uh, established with Trakel, um, who mm-hmm. you've partnered with for years as, as part of their pro team. Um, how did that relationship begin? It began, they, uh, they actually sent a writer over to interview me, and he sent me a bunch of brushes and asked me what I liked and didn't like about them because they're trying to develop their paintbrush line. This had to have been like maybe 13 years ago, maybe more. And I was like, yeah, I'd happy to try them out. And they wanted to see the brushes I was using. And I showed them what I liked. I was even using some um, uh, makeup brushes. My wife was in the marketing and business. She was doing marketing for this um, cosmetic company. So she'd always bring me brushes home, uh, makeup brushes. So I put those into my set of brushes, my toolkit. And I showed them, I like these for blending. And they started developing brushes like those. Like, what else do you like? I'm like, well, I like this and that and the other. Wow, what else do you like? And then my wife started talking to them and said, you know, if you want to sponsor Greg and give him a certain amount of brushes a year, we'll promote it too and tell our friends. And it became this this hand-in-hand um, partnership. They're like, well, and then I came up with this whole idea and I wrote this big long email to Courtney over there one day. I'm like, you know, I'm watching the Bones Brigade um, movie right now. I'm watching Search for Animal Chin. These guys are a group of dudes that are assembled together as a pro team under the Bones Brigade. And they do tricks on a piece of wood and they all these kids see it. They want to buy a Bones Brigade board because this piece of wood, the skateboard, is the thing everybody wants because these guys made it cool. What if me and a handful of artists, we just did our tricks on the pieces of wood, which are the paintbrushes, and did the same thing. We, it, it's like we need to have our own Bones Brigade. Let's do a Trackle pro, pro team. And I introduced them to Dabs and Myla, and from there – it just grew. The roster grew. They started handpicking artists. I got my buddy Sub, Tony Suranai on there. Like, just They have such a great pro team now. It's it's awesome to see. But it just made sense. You guys need to have that. You know, We're doing the same thing. We're making t-shirts. We're making stickers. They're putting out products. My, my dad was the first one to introduce them to making panels. That's why sometimes if you get a panel, there's a sticker on the back that says G.H. Simpkins, which is George Henry Simpkins. Because my dad used to make all my panels, and so he showed them his process. So he's got a little legacy over there too. And um, But it just became such a great relationship. I love I love the people at Trickell. And I have my Series 9 brushes are about to come out really soon too, so I'm stoked on these. And we're going to include my uh, the white the general's white char- uh, charcoal pencil that I draw my paintings with. Oh, nice. They're going to be included in the set because people always ask, "What's that white pencil you use?" And the reason I use that specific pencil is because I've made the mistake in the past of drawing my ideas on the canvas with a Prismacolor, and the wax base on that always bled through in through the oh. acrylic. So I stopped that immediately and started using charcoal, and that just has been the best. Because you can wipe it off really easily if you don't like what's gone on. And it it's really goes easy with the paintings. What what goes into developing those artist series brushes? Like how much back and forth is it between you and Trakel? And, and what does that look like? It's as much back and forth as you want, really. Like so there was a point where I said, I really like these dagger brushes. Um, let's stagger them and, and give it a point because they're really good for making feathers and foliage and stuff like that. And they're like, we can make those. I'm like, cool. I'm like, can we do brushes kind of like these makeup brushes? They're like, yeah, we can make those. And they would take my input and make these brushes. And then they became part of their series. And so now I just kind of handpick whatever I'm really using at the moment, like whichever rounds, liners, filberts, cat's tongues, daggers, script brushes. 
if I put a set together, I'm like, well, I really, I've really been into these ones lately. And these have been helping me work on these paintings, which people will see in the videos. Like he's, he's doing these techniques on these pieces with these brushes. So I'll put together a set that'll complement what I've been painting recently. And so people can say, oh, okay, that's a good set. I can use that set to accomplish this. So they don't need to get my set. They could go to trakel.com and go to the Golden Taclons or the Spectrum series and hand pick what they want. Or they can get the set and go, this is what he uses. So I'm going to grab that one. It doesn't matter. They can go either way they want. But I, I just, I like to include like a cool sticker and then have a cool label on, on my series. So it could be a collector's item too. Well, it's really cool because I mean, there's definitely a lot of synergy there. And it's interesting how the market, your your wife's marketing background sort of contributed to this whole building this relationship and, and establishing Correct. that. It's very smart. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So um, bef- before we dive into what you have coming up, I-, I wanted to, I guess, congratulate you on your silver YouTube award, which I saw you, you post about, you know, a, a few weeks ago, um, which I guess they sent you for passing 100,000 subscribers. Like that's, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I think it's like close to 160 now, uh, 160,000. I just forgot to redeem it at 100,000. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, I have to click this button and send my address. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll figure that out. Um, yeah, I was blown away. I, I didn't think that would happen. I, I, I'm not going to rap about this YouTube thing, trying to be a YouTuber or anything. I don't even understand a lot of it. I just know that I like filming it. And when I edit the videos, I kind of get to revisit what I did and how I could do things differently. The whole editing process of the video, I'm learning how to paint the next painting. Oh, wow. So it, it kind of instructs what I'm going to work on next a little bit. So I like that process. And it, and it's been fun figuring out how to do the thing and interacting with new people that I thought, I thought it's just all of the people from my Instagram are just the same people interacting with me on YouTube, but it's a whole new group of people. I'd never seen my work before. And I was like, wow, this is a new audience. And I'm having these conversations with people They're like, wow, I just found you on here. I was like, no way. That's so cool. Like, and I've got to meet people on there and I really like YouTube. I think it's, it's, it's a good platform and I've learned a lot just watching other people's videos. So yeah, I hope to impart some of that. I know people get mad that I only do time lapses for the most part, but that's just the bandwidth I, I'm able to do because I'm painting. And if I set up a camera, which I'm pretty much using iPhones, they're gonna it's going to kill my data. And it's going to like, it, it just, I don't have the bandwidth to really do long form painting videos. So as long as people are fine with the time lapses, you know, I get a little bit of hate mail from it. Like, oh, another time lapse, unfollow. I'm like, sorry. <laughs> what a weird thing to reach out to somebody for, yeah. to complain about. Or don't tell me and just don't watch right. it is what I would tell them. But I get some hate mail like that. Like, how dare you put another time lapse up? I'm like, I'm sorry, but there's more love than hate. So I don't really yeah. care. Well, that's, that's crazy. I mean, I'm definitely one of the 100,000. Um, and I love your process videos, uh, you know. and and Thank you so much. It's interesting because like some... You know, there's a handful of other artists that I follow that have YouTube channels, but it almost seems like it's sort of a secondary platform for them. But you you really put a lot of focus into it. And, and I, I think it, it really shows in, in the quality of the video and the stuff that you're putting out there. Oh, thank you very much. I, I, I just enjoy it. I think it's it's fun and I'm learning the tools at the same time. So I'm making it like I'm making it a project. So I want to be able to do these things. I'm trying to teach my 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 kids a little bit along the way too. like my oldest son. He, he's into skateboarding and stuff like that. So I'll sit with him and edit some of his skate videos together. Nice. He has a little Instagram that I don't really give him full control of because he's only 13. I let him, I'm like, you can go on for 30 minutes a day 
and then I, I, you're off. I, I don't let them have a phone with it on it because I don't think it's healthy for young kids to be on all the time. But we'll make a little funny skate video together and and then he can post it and that's it. But he's learning. I'm trying to teach him these tools like Final Cut Pro and After Effects and these things too and make it fun and exciting and putting quirky, goofy stuff to old old commercials and old cartoons and splicing in nice. there and it's fun it's fun for him that's very cool and what, what i didn't really anticipate was the fact that you like you said you use it as a learning tool i, I didn't really think about that aspect of it so yeah it, it's 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 a very good tool for that so how much time do you do you like dedicate time out of your day and schedule time to work on these not really. Like if if I say I'm doing like a little post for Instagram, it won't take me long. I'm pretty fast with After Effects and stuff now. And I'm not doing anything too like gnarly. Um, I'll, I'll spend maybe like 45 minutes if it's something short and quick. Um, but I generally will finish my painting every each day. I'll upload whatever footage I took to the computer, drop it in a certain folder so I know where to grab it. So when the painting's finished, I'll drop it off at my printers to go get um, high res scanned. And while I'm waiting for that scan, which can take up to a week, I'm editing the video, trying to find something like some fun B-roll to put in it, and then picking the music. I have to use music from the YouTube approved music library. <laughs> so I used to not, and I'd get dinged for it. Like if you've seen the older videos, the ones that that have all the weird cartoon music and stuff in it, I can't really get away with that stuff anymore because YouTube gets mad at you and I really try to get obscure music too, just from old, old commercials. So I can't really do that anymore. So I get like more calm, soothing music and stuff that you can just kind of gel with and while the video is going and I'll lay the music out and start editing over the top of it. And that's it. <laughs> you know, it'll take, and then by the time I get the final high res scan, I'll drop that in there and then the video is ready to put up. So that makes it hard. I can't like post like every week, like people tend to want you to. It just, it's too hard. No, no doubt. Um, is, is it distracting at all for you to have that camera always kind of over your shoulder? Do you think about it or does it get in the way at all? No, that's why I like doing the time lapse because I don't think about it. Like mm. that's the one, number one reason I use it. And, you know, it sometimes I forget to turn it on and I miss a lot of footage, which sucks. Um, sometimes it does get in the way. If there's a certain shot I want to get, I'll put it right in front and I'll kind of paint my arms around it if I'm going to do like some slow motion stuff just to show with the technique. But it's not that big a deal. I, I'm pretty much used to it now and I don't notice it. I'm, I've been researching, trying to figure out different camera setups and cameras to get. And I talk into friends who do it more and they're tell, you know pointing me in the direction, oh, get this, get that. Let's choose some different lighting. So I got to slowly but surely incrementally up the the game i'm gonna get a item a camera something here and there just to make it a little bit better very cool awesome well and, and speaking of video um you know one of the landmark projects in your career was your time your um your stop motion animation i'm scared um you know which i think in 2016 came out um, Correct. tell me about that like how did that project come about was that something that you had the idea for and then went to them or they came to you about like how did that come together my, my good friend, Dan Levy, came to me and said, I'm working with this awesome director, Pete Levin, and we wanted to talk to you about possibly let's do a Kickstarter and make a stop motion out of one of your stories. And I was like, and your work, I'm like, oh, that's crazy. That'll never happen. That'd be amazing. 
We sat down and talked and presented this one idea to them. And they're like, that's super depressing. I was like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> what else you got? I'm like, well, I have this story I've been writing with my son when he goes to bed at night called I'm Scared. And it's just a rhyme, rhyming couplets of something you're scared of at night. And it gets more and more intense as it goes. And like, let's do that. And I was like, okay, cool. Because he could picture the scenes and all the stuff in his head. Like Pete's really good at that stuff. So we went and sat down. We wrote, rewrote it to make it actually doable because there's a lot of crazy stuff in it i should i should still put out the the crazier stuff from i'm scared the story i wrote with my son because there's some funny like rhyming stuff in it but um yeah they they made it um the kickstarter went through and it went through the the film festivals and it's just a it's a great beautiful piece that i'm really proud of i'm really proud of that team they're they're awesome and um you can see it online at um on my website but it's also on youtube under i'm scared the movie so everybody should go watch it. It's perfect for Halloween. It's a five-minute animated short, and it's very Halloween-y. And I don't know if people ever notice it who've seen it. There's a little cameo we threw in there from my good friend Alex Party. So <laughs> look for that. How involved were you in the creation of the film? Like, Obviously, it, it was sparked by an initial idea from you, but did you get involved with like concept art and, and some of the story along the way? Absolutely. I did uh, uh, the concept art and the story, and we have a book on the making of the whole movie that we have out. Uh, you can get through my online store and it's basically it's, it's they take shots from the movie. So it's like a children's book. And at the end there's all the process of the movie getting made in the book, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I did the concept art. Uh, my buddy, Jonathan Wayshack did the storyboards and then a big team of amazing artists from, from the stop motion world um, created this beautiful sets and it's way bigger than you think. It's beautiful. You can watch. There's also a video online of the behind the scenes that links after the movie. You guys should watch it. It's really cool. Did you enjoy that process? If it's something that you would like to maybe do again? Um, the process was, was fun. I didn't really get in there and do the stop motion stuff. I, I, I got to visit the set. It was like, okay, go, Greg, so we can do our job. I don't want to get anybody's way. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was totally fun. Very cool. So, so let's talk about what you have coming up. Any, anything you're focused on right now that you can talk about? I have things I can't talk about that I'm working on, and I have things I can talk about. I, I think I could talk. I have a, a new book in the works, which I'm completely excited about, especially since two of them just sold out. Like the newest book of paintings just recently sold out, and then the silver edition of The Outside sold out. So I was like, oh, dang it. We're getting thin on these books here. We still have The Outside and the I'm Scared book, but I've just been really excited about working on this next book and I th I've talked about it before so I don't think it's big, I, could, I think I could talk about it now but like back in the day my first book was a book of drawings called Drawn from the Well and I've been teasing, teasing it for years I always wanted to do Drawn to the Well and so far what uh, Kirk Peterson has put together is I think by far the best book I I'm going to have out it's, it's beautiful I can't, I, I can't wait to show people, but I, there's, there's, we're still working on it. So I might be preemptively talking about it and I might get slapped on the hand for this, but this book is insane. I'm very excited about it. Is there a, a release date like targeted yet? None that I could talk about. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, what about a solo show? Any new show? What's like, what's your next solo show? Have you determined that yet? You know, because of the whole pandemic stuff, we decided we're not going to do a solo show. We didn't do the solo shows last year. We decided we're not going to do 21. Um, I like to play coy and not tell anybody when we're going to do the next one. But um, I would also like everybody to know I paint, I'm paint. i painting every single day. And it's 
I, I'm excited for when the next one does happen. Um, it's it's going to be amazing. Um, I'm not I'm not happy with the way the world is these days. It's like going into live spaces is getting it's so difficult. It sucks, and I want people to have that experience like they used to. Going to my shows was, you know, it'd be like thousands of people. It, like the line was always down the block to get in, and it's just like you're so crowded in amongst each other. That whole aspect of shows is kind of gone, and it and it's sad. I want to see the world be able to open up again and, and have those experiences again. Like that was part of the, the highlights of one of my shows was just, just that crowd was, it was so exciting to see the look on people's faces and stuff. Yeah. So I'm going to paint just, I'm painting just as much and I'm making pieces just as much. We're just planning it out more strategically, how we're going to release the things. Well, and from a collector perspective, that in-person experience adds so much more. I mean, especially with the large-scale works that you do. I mean, it, there's just so much more you get from it than seeing it online or Instagram or whatever. You know? Yeah, you can't you can't beat being able to feel like you actually could walk into one of these paintings. I, that, one of my favorite parts is right when I finish a big piece, I'll just sit and stare at it for a while, going, "Oh my gosh!" You can feel <laughs> the atmosphere of it, and it's it's just there's nothing like it. It's like Seeing it online doesn't do anything justice. It, you got to stand in front of the big piece and get into it. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get back there someday. <laughs> no, I'm definitely going to get, it's definitely going to get back there. I, I, I want people to, yeah, it's going to be there, but uh, I got to be secretive too. <laughs> so where can people find you online? Well, online, I have gregsimkinsart.com and that's my website. And you can click shop on that and you will go to my online store, which has merchandise and limited edition prints and books, hats, t-shirts, you name it. And then I, my YouTube page is Craig Simpkins Art. And on Instagram, it's at Crayola, C-R-A-O-L-A. Any new uh, prints coming up that you want to put on people's radar? Yes, we are going to be releasing new prints coming up very soon. Um, there's also some new drawings coming out very soon that people have been chomping at. Uh, I wanted to share with and a couple other fun items coming up really soon. Um, if you join my mailing list at gregsimkinsart.com, you will get first shot at these things. And otherwise, I will be releasing on Instagram and YouTube um, when these things are available. But the email list always gets first shot by a few days. So, um, yeah, it's good to sign up for that. Awesome. Very cool. So last question, and this is something that I like to ask everybody. Uh, who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show? Oh my gosh. I knew you were going to ask this because I heard you <laughs> ask this on Jock on ja Cooper's episode. And I was trying to think about this. There's so many artists I'd like to see on here. Oh gosh. If you want people talking about... I, I mean, okay. There's one artist I always love to hear about. It's Todd Shore. He was like one of my biggest influences, but... He, it's like you don't really see um, interviews and stuff by him, and I don't even know if he does them. So I'm just, if he does them anymore, that'd be fun to to hear a talk with. But then there's my friends I like to hear. I want to hear Bob Dobb come on here because he's a funny guy and he has lots of art stories. Or like Command Z has really cool art stories and stories from his marketing background, which I find fascinating. So, and I wish you could uh, get Dr. Seuss from the dead because it'd be fun to <laughs> hear him talk about his, how he put together his weird landscapes, which I'm always fascinated by. So, hey, bring, bring back some dead artists. Let's get Hieronymus Bosch on here. <laughs> Let's get Caravaggio. Just get the ghosts. Go get the ghosts. I'll, I'll get started on that, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. It's, it's, it's been a treat. Yeah, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this.
So that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Greg. I really love how Greg has put such a strong focus on building out this world of his, the outside. That kind of world building is something that I'm personally a huge fan of. Um, And not just in terms of visual arts, but really across all kinds of arts. Like the Stephen King books I mentioned in the show. Um, And and Nine Inch Nails created this entire alternate reality experience around the campaign for their album Year Zero. uh, Which has actually ended up being frighteningly close to our current reality. Um, But we won't go into that. Uh, shows like The Leftovers that really dive deep into character development and world building. I've always gravitated to those sorts of artistic endeavors, so it's no surprise that I'm so drawn to Greg's work. I think what can be powerful about these types of artistic expression is that they're not just telling a story or playing some music with one simple message. Um, But they're creating an experience out of that, something you can lose yourself in and and be a part of. Uh, And I think think that's a common thread in all of those, and and certainly in Greg's work. Also, it was super interesting to hear more about the the unique ways that Greg uses acrylics and and how he discovered different techniques. Uh, The way he accidentally discovered the layering technique um, that, that he still makes heavy use of today by making a really bad mistake and then using the way that he overcame that mistake as a learning experience. Uh, And something really positive came from it. Uh, I I guess the takeaway from that is to, you know, constantly be on the lookout for opportunities for growth. And Greg continues to demonstrate that today, Uh, how he continues to learn and grow just by editing his YouTube videos. A great example of how no matter what level you've reached as an artist um, or what stature you've earned, it's so important to continue striving for growth. So thanks again to Greg for joining me today, and thank you for checking out the show. I'm truly grateful for your support. One big way you can help out if you're enjoying the show would be to review it on Apple Podcasts, and of course just sharing it with your friends. As always, you can contact me through my website at artaffairspodcast.com or on Instagram at artaffairspodcast. So until next time, be good to yourself and be good to each other.